0: Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender.
1: This is an interesting article. We've had a number of people in our group who have uh, been on dialysis and have also had kidney transplants. And this is a you, can you get the article up there?
2: Um,
1: this is not the article okay mm-hmm. this is I mean this is the article but this is this is just the title of the article this is not the article itself.
2: okay Well let me see what John Buchanan can do <clears throat> uh and this this particular
1: article. It's one of the fewest, well, one of the, yes, as a matter of fact, the only article in the last probably 20 years in which it has demonstrated that there's an improvement in the way in which dialysis is administered, which impacts uh, patient survival. And they, uh, in this article describe how ultrafiltration and uh, has improved by about 20% the survival of patients on dialysis. Uh, patients on dialysis uh, fear um, variably. There's some people who on dialysis, they work and do well. And some people on dialysis, the day of dialysis is shot. The day after dialysis, they come back to life again. And then the day they go back on dialysis is shot again. And there are some people on dialysis who uh, have a quality of life that's uh, uh, close to normal. Uh, and, uh, uh, but one thing is clear that uh, th- there's about a 10% death rate from dialysis every year. So that at uh, five years, 50% of their patients who are in dialysis are, are dead. Uh, and uh, so uh, dialysis is a, a treatment that is wonderful in in terms of uh, giving you uh, uh, function for four to six hours a day, three times a week. But our kidneys work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so it it does a a job of keeping you alive. But uh, for some, it it does that barely. And so as a consequence, uh, transplantation is, of course, the treatment of choice for, for end-stage renal disease. And uh, when you look at the death rate from uh, patients who are on dialysis versus those who had a kidney transplant, you see about 10 to 100-fold improvement in, in survival in those people who are transplanted compared to those people who stay on dialysis. So, so that it is the treatment of choice for uh, a kidney failure. And so we need ways of making dialysis uh, uh, be associated with uh, better survival rates. And uh, this article uh, uh, actually talks about probably the only new development in dialysis treatments uh, that has demonstrated uh, patient survival uh, in the last 25, 30
2: years. And uh, so, uh, so we we're trying to get that article up. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: that's this, that's the article. And uh, it's called high dose hemofiltration. Uh, and they and they, they the nice thing about this, they did a a study in which they studied 1360 patients for 30 months. Many of the studies you see don't uh, are long term, but this is a uh, long term. And the email dialysis filtration is a newer uh, technology that uh, does more than the old treatment used to do. Uh, uh, the only thing about the question is whether uh, you know one of the things that happens with people on dialysis is that sometimes they get washed out and the, the rate is of, of uh, exchange of fluid is so rapid that uh, their the blood pressure drops and they have those kinds of problems. And so the question is, uh, is this gonna happen in these patients as well? But the long-term uh, survival rate suggests that, uh, uh, that this is something that uh, uh, will increase, uh, survival and of course, sixty percent of those people who are on dialysis are uh, people of color and so this affects us more than anybody else. And so this is a new major step forward uh, and uh, uh, the question is uh, uh, this has been done in the European studies what will happen here in the United States as uh, as uh, this uh, uh, has demonstrated, it considerable with uh, a decrease in the death rates.
0: Is this new technique available for home dialysis? Not
1: yet, they, they, it's not, not yet. Right now, it's, and, and th- remember this is the first phase of it. And so it, it was just done in this group of patients. Hasn't been done at home yet. And, and home dialysis is thought to be the most desirable of dialysis treatments, uh, one one reason for that is that uh, uh, sometimes they dialyze longer at home than they do in dialysis units. Uh, maybe going as long as six hours rather than the four that is conventionally done. <laughs> and then, of course, with peritoneal dialysis, uh, they they dialyze uh, eight hours a day. So. And that's more close, closely approximates what our kidney does 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, so with the hem- peritoneal dialysis, they do it uh, uh, seven days a week. So that is getting much closer to what our kidney actually does. And that is perhaps the reason that peritoneal dialysis is thought to be the uh, dialysis of choice in terms of closely normalizing those people who have end-stage kidney disease.
2: Hmm. Any other questions or comments from uh, some of you who
1: have actually been on dialysis? and, and others? I,
3: I haven't been on, good morning, everybody. I haven't been on dialysis, of course, but I do know several people that are on dialysis. And I heard you say that some people can function almost normally and some you know, that next day they're kind of out of it. Uh, is, does that have anything to do with the length of time they've actually been on dialysis?
1: Well, well, no, because we have some people who start off that way, and they stay that way. We have uh-huh. some people. Now, it is clear, though, that the longer you're on dialysis, uh, it it takes a, a, a great effect upon you. And, uh, and uh, the longer you're on dialysis, uh, it is likely that the worse off you will be, mm-hmm. but but we have some patients who have survived as long as twenty years on on dialysis. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, one
3: one friend of mine said he's been on dialysis for fifteen years. Yeah. Sure about the other
1: one. Yeah. These are the exceptions to the rule because uh, uh, it's about the average rate of mortality is about ten percent per year.
2: Mm. Now the
1: the only uh, problem is that this has been uh, uh, a European finding, and whether it applies to us in the United States is another question. But uh, uh, most of the cost of the treatment for dialysis is borne by the government and uh, Medicare, and this is probably the only health, only disease for which uh, the, the government pays for, so that uh, <laughs> we have actually universal health care for kidney disease, but not for any other disease. It's an interesting mm-hmm. phenomenon in which 95% of patients with end stage mental disease
2: are covered by Medicare. Regardless of the age of the patient, okay. so it's going to be interesting to see how uh, this plays out here in the
1: United States. Is okay.
3: This, has this treatment been approved in the UK? I mean, it's already.
1: Listen, that's a trial, it's okay. not not approved yet. Okay. But it's it's, it's kind of uh, looking in the future. But there hasn't been anything new in treatment of kidney failure for almost 25 years. So this is a, a development that is uh, being looked at, and uh, hopefully this is
2: just beginning of a new era. Uh, You can go to the next article. Uh, Now we've had many articles on uh, aspirin and uh,
1: uh, the role that it plays in cardiovascular health and also the pros and cons of uh, the use of aspirin. Uh, that it affects the platelets and can cause bleeding to occur. Uh, uh, of course, the purpose of, of giving aspirin is uh, to, to prevent clots and uh, blood clots block the circulation, and uh, uh, so that uh, aspirin uh, has a uh, has a, a positive result. Uh, and this this is a uh, pointing out that uh, even if you haven't had a major bleeding event, that you can have anemia a low blood count as a consequence of it, which suggests that you have a small amount of bleeding. Uh, And uh, the question is uh, the cost-benefit ratio. Is the uh, benefit of the uh, low-dose aspirin in preventing the clot, uh, is that benefit Way overweight, the the amount of of bleeding that you may occur that may occur, and so uh, there's many uh, an article that talks about why you should take aspirin, and and many articles talking about why you shouldn't take aspirin. And uh, right now, uh, the uh, feeling is that unless you have uh, cardiovascular disease. Uh, that you probably should not take low dose aspirin, although uh, that has been the practice
2: of cardiologists for at least the last 10 years or so. Any of you take uh, aspirin as a prevention? I do.
1: And many many do because that was the cardiologist practice uh, for at least the last 10 to 20 years. Uh, the the reason they changed is that because many people who didn't have cardiovascular disease were taking it. For those who had cardiovascular disease, they thought it was perhaps uh, worthwhile, but they wondered if uh, uh, it was really worth the risk for those people who did not have cardiovascular disease. Of course, in our people of color, when you're over the age of 40, uh, the likelihood of not having cardiovascular disease is is uh, decreased, and, and that's why uh, when you get a uh, your annual physical uh, when you're over forty, uh, it's 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 important to, of course, get your blood pressure checked, but it's equally important to get your urine tested for protein uh, because. Uh, uh, proteinuria is one of the first signs of kidney disease, and catching that early may may result in uh, uh, delaying the onset of kidney disease
2: mm-hmm. and the progression of kidney disease. Uh, Dr. Callender, those people who don't have um, heart problems, uh, if they take aspirin, is it to prevent? lots what lots, lots. yeah, that's why
1: that's why the doctors were giving them low dose aspirin, yes and, and the 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 feeling is now is that if you don't have cardiovascular disease, the risk of bleeding may be greater than your risk of getting cardiovascular disease. if you don't already have it. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, let's go to the next one. Okay. The next one would be um, your choice. What do you see? You like? yeah. Just go down the line. Sure drug reaches weight loss. That's right, yeah. Uh, this is an article that talks about
1: uh, uh, retetradine, re, which is a new weight loss medication that has been more effective in the phase two studies than any other drug in the past. And, so they're suggesting that uh, uh, for people who have obesity or type two diabetes, this is a, a drug that uh, not only addresses the obesity but also addresses just the diabetes. And uh, so they are therefore suggesting that this drug in the future may be the drug of choice for people who have uh, obesity, of course. Uh, this is competitive then with the bariatric surgery. Uh, and so uh, people in, uh, are very high on uh, the fact that this may be a, a new achievement for uh, o- obesity that uh, uh, will become the treatment of choice over the next time. Now here again, these are uh, still uh, phase two studies that uh, have not been applied uh, to, uh, uh, they're not, not FDA approved yet. So. But these are studies that are suggesting that uh, this may be a new treatment for obesity, which, is, which of course is one of the biggest problems in uh, the United States. With uh, over, over 50% of people of color over the age of 50 being obese. So,
2: the, the, uh, so there are many ways of addressing that, but this is thought to be one of the newer ways of, of doing it. Now, one of the things that is awesome about this is that uh,
1: we talked about uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease being uh, uh, the, one of the commonest causes of liver failure and the need for transplant and so this drug may reduce the uh, fat and clear some of the fat that uh, is is toxic to the liver cells and so uh, this is one of the articles that addresses the fact that one of the causes of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is type 2 diabetes and this treatment of the diabetes may help clear the fat from the liver, which is uh, therapeutic. Uh, We talk about uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We talk about uh, that being uh, irreversible, but we talk about uh, uh, having the early stage of it where it is treatable, uh, and this kind of medication may reduce the fat that's in the liver that's toxic to the liver cells.
2: Any questions about what we're talking about? Um Dr.
4: Callender, you say this drug isn't it's just an experiment state, right? Yes. Okay, so we're just learning about it, but we can't ask for it yet.
2: Not
1: yet, but 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 when you see, when we we'll get we'll probably see an article when it gets to FDA and it's approved by FDA, and uh, then that will be the time we'll be able to uh, take advantage of it.
4: Okay, how does a person get in the study group?
1: Oh uh, well, those study groups are already formed, uh, so. Oh
4: okay.
1: Yeah. So the. Uh, so that's already said, the next step is for them to apply to the FDA to get approval. And with the data like this, it should be pretty easy. Now the, the consequence that is important, or losing the weight is important, but the fact that uh, you decrease the amount, the amount of liver toxicity and liver fibrosis is something that is desirable it is known that uh uh d- obesity and uh, diabetes are the two uh causes of uh non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and so this is then is something and in, in the past non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is only treated by successfully by liver transplantation and so uh, this uh uh, promises that uh, we will be able to uh, make a difference in that
2: in in the near future. Oh, that's good. Okay, we we'll go to the the next one. And we've talked about type one and type two diabetes before, and. Uh, uh, we recognize that type 2 is the is the diabetes that most
1: Black people have, and that uh, type 1 is the one in which you have no insulin at all. Type 2 is where you have insulin, but the insulin is not effective. Now, we talked last week, I think, or week before, about artificial sweetness, and the argument was that uh, uh, we know that excess sugar is harmful, but to what extent are the sugar replaces on the artificial sweeteners uh, more destructive than the sugar? And so there's been a number of articles that have pointed out that uh, artificial sweeteners have their, their problems. And this article Uh, in contradistinction to the previous articles, points out that, yes, it does have problems and that most of the studies that have put into it have not been substantial enough to warrant eliminating uh, the use of uh, non-sugar sweeteners. And so uh, this is, uh, of course, I think uh, one of the uh, sucraloses was the one that was uh looked at last two weeks ago
2: when mm-hmm. we
1: talked about it but uh, you can see the number of different kinds of uh, sugar substitutes we know that the sugar uh, in the diabetic is a uh, problem uh, because uh, uh, the management of glucose when it's not uh, lowered it causes arteriosclerosis and uh, the loss of limbs and extremities and uh, loss of sight and, and many other things so that uh, we know that sugar in people who cannot tolerate it is uh, destructive. And the question is, uh, which of the poisons do you want to have? Do you want to have the sugar or you want to have the, the sweeter, sweetener? And so, uh, this is a, a, a study that this is a controversy that has been going on for some time and uh, I think when you're a diabetic, you don't have much of a choice. Uh, and so, uh, well, you have a choice in the sense that you can uh, take fruits, which are a natural source. And uh, uh, but when you, but but sugar is kind of out for the diabetic. So, uh, so that that you have to take that in consideration when you talk about about saying that you shouldn't use. Artificial artificial sweetness. so but splendor and and stevia uh, have been the drugs that have been thought to be associated with cancer and other uh, disease entities. <laughs> and uh, uh, there's a lot of criticism about continuing to use these drugs. Uh, but I, I know it's clear that. Uh, Many of the studies that have identified uh, these products as being uh, toxic have uh, have a lot of criticism about them in, in terms of whether they've had enough patience and long enough follow-up. But anyway, it's food for, it's food for thought and for discussion because uh, if you're a diabetic, then you, you, you know that uh, sugar is not good
2: and so, what do you, what can you do? Any diabetics or others who have uh,
1: concerns about this?
5: Yeah, I stopped I stopped at my doctor's suggestion a couple of years ago using, because I like stevia, that, that, that worked for me, but she told me that uh, about the risk of cancer. So I just drink water now and when I, uh, uh for a treat i'll i'll have something i might have a drink but i try to drink tea with no sugar in it i'm trying to develop the taste for that i can only take that in small doses though
6: any other comments it's discouraging because um years ago they discouraged you from using a lot of sugar and that's when the artificial sweeteners came out and everyone tried it and some got hooked like me and I take Splenda. And if I was to have a cup of coffee and I was using sugar instead of Splenda, I mean, I'm tripling the dose of sugar, the amount of sugar that I put in my cup of coffee, whereas Splenda, it gives me just that right flavor. So definitely, obviously it's something that I see now. I need to try to reduce or stay away from. I use Splenda regularly. I'm not saying every day, but pretty close. But whether it's hot coffee or a glass of iced tea, I'm using that Splenda. Um, so I need to rethink it.
1: Well, it's it's, it's important to recognize that uh, you're talking about which of the two uh, is less of an evil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we know that sugar is, uh, an evil. Although we're addicted to it. Uh, But, uh, uh, and the question is, is the artificial sweetener lesser of an evil than sugar? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what research is all about. And many believe that uh, the sweeteners are less of an evil than the sugar. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: the craving for something sweet, either artificial sugar or real sugar, it's uh it's a habit and an and an addiction but mm-hmm. if you can go with that if you can go like uh 30 days without something sweet mm. sweet sweet things won't taste good to you uh you'll have to readapt i mean you can readapt and so it it starts to taste good to you again but uh you just hold on for 30 days and you can change all that mm-hmm. i have, Do a,
7: have a yeah i have a question um it said earlier in the article that there could possibly be some DNA damage. Is that from the real sugar or from the sweetener?
1: That's from the s- sweetener.
7: Okay.
1: The, the sugar already is uh, destructive in many different ways. So we know that. But they're talking about the sweet sweeteners.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I don't see equal in this article. Is equal in that same category, though, right? Well,
1: they have the, the two that uh, that they've done studies on that, that they suggested is sucralose the, and stevia. Those two. The, the others have not uh, been the subject of uh, uh, of of uh, studies that indicate that they're destructive so they, they talk mostly about uh Splenda and Stevia
3: I'm an equal
1: user okay oh they don't they haven't uh, uh talked about equal good
2: uh
1: can we go oh okay all right any yeah, so. comment okay
2: let's go to the next one Okay. Ah. Uh. Well, one of the things we all know that uh,
1: smoking is bad for you. Uh, and uh, one of the things that uh, is problematical is that across the, the world, smoking still is a source of cancer. And uh, one of the things that is really frightening is that uh, uh, probably about 20% of the people, between 10 and 20% of the people who uh, develop cancer, develop cancer, because they have secondary uh, smoking, meaning that they don't smoke themselves, but they've been around people who smoke. And this is uh, uh, bad enough that uh, if you smoke, you get cancer. But when you smoke around other people, and that gives them cancer, that is uh, uh, problematic. And so... Uh the question is how do we uh, do something? As we know, there are many problems associated with smoking, and the lung disease and cancer just one of them. There are many other uh, associations that uh, smoking uh, causes increase in cardiovascular disease as well, as well as uh, stroke and cancer. So the question is uh, What are we going to do about it? Now, I think one of the things that we tend not to spend a lot of time on is is recognizing that the reason that smoking is a problem is because it's addictive, number one. Number two, people make a lot of money off. And uh, those two factors are uh, are what it's all about. And and, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that there used to be a decrease in the of smoking in the United States, but but in Europe, it's 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 really increased significantly. And so, but then also look at the amount of money that people have made—94 uh, billion compared to what it used to be. Yeah. So, but uh, it's still uh, problematic that we still have so many people who smoke. And the fact that not only does it cause lung cancer and lung diseases, but it also exposes you to cardiovascular disease. It also causes peripheral arterial disease. Uh, and uh, it's been associated with so many diseases that it's uh, uh, important to avoid ever smoking. Uh, and also to avoid being around people who smoke, uh, which is harder to do, but... Uh, uh, it's, 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 it's good that places are, are prohibiting smoking so that you don't get secondary smoking as a problem, uh, which uh, far too many wives of husbands who smoke or spouses of husbands, people who smoke uh, die from cancer while the, the smoker sometimes does not.
5: Any of you smoke? I did for 40 years, but I stopped 15 years ago.
1: Oh, good, good.
5: But I take—I took Wellbutrin.
1: That was the key, huh?
5: Yes. Okay. It, took it, the, it took the addiction out of my mind, okay. out of my head. Taking it out of your system is easy, but you got to take it out of your head. And that's what
6: took it out of my
5: head.
1: OK. Any other comments?
6: No, I was just going to say, I don't see many people smoking now. I would have thought the trend was different. The smokers have gone down. It, but... Has.
1: it has, but uh, in Europe, it's gone up. In the United right. States, it's gone down in Europe. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. When I went from... out of the
5: country, I noticed they have more advertising. I mean, it was just saturated with with the Marlboro Man and all of that. That's <laughs> still alive overseas
0: yeah 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 how about smoke from the canadian wildfires
1: yeah of course that was uh yeah that that inundated uh, new york city and washington dc didn't get out where you are but it
0: uh, yeah it it, did um yeah the the air quality is real bad in in chicago right now from the wildfires oh really oh i didn't know yeah, this, this We're week
1: is.
5: raining here in DC.
1: Yeah, it, it was pretty bad, but it's gone now. But it was uh, awful. Uh, I didn't realize it getting out to Chicago.
0: Yeah, this week it's it's been so bad. You can see a, a blue haze everywhere in the air. And wow. It's, It's been so bad um, that I couldn't get any sleep because the bird's been coughing all night. So yesterday I put some cough drops in the bird feeder and I was able to get some rest.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Daryl,
2: that's... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, well for those who who wanted us to smile, that'll do it.
7: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Dr. Callender, this article doesn't mention emphysema as one of the diseases.
1: Actually, it does, up, up above.
7: It, oh, it does,
2: OK.
1: It's, it's obstructive. It's, it's oh, yeah, I saw so that. Yeah.
2: Obstructive.
1: That, that's the same.
2: COPD, OK.
1: Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Because as you, you're you right, that's uh, mm-hmm. one of the biggest problems that smoking does. So
5: I didn't get that, but I got the. Uh, the uh, peripheral artery disease.
1: Yeah, that does that too. Marijuana also does that too. Mm.
4: Mm -hmm. It does. um, We have a relative now that has that in in, uh, rehab because of the COPD and relatives and it also caused the arterial venous insufficiency and all of that. But um, even Hello. after having it, other relatives that might see it, it doesn't uh, dawn upon them that smoking caused all of this. They right. attributed to maybe her lifestyle or something like that, but nobody's, you know, I guess, uh, I don't know, yeah, they had different that, that when somebody actually gets this from smoking, they tend to blame everything else. In Bailey's matters. Crossroads, like what Dunnagrass is. Huh? Uh, mm-hmm.
7: Somebody needs to be muted.
4: Okay, um, that they actually blame it on the real culprit of the whole thing was smoking that started the whole ball game. Mm
1: -hmm. Very Mm -hmm. good comment, very appropriate. Now, this is an article that we uh, circulated, but uh, uh, the fact that they continue to talk about a new drug for uh, multiple sclerosis, which is now actually being used. Uh, uh, okay. And, and this, this new drug is a monoclonal antibodies that, uh, uh, and I, I have some of my physician friends who are actually on this treatment. And, uh, it has been surprisingly effective in terms of the fact that they, they only use it maybe uh, once or twice uh, a year and uh, it is very effective in modifying the way in which multiple sclerosis presents. Multiple sclerosis presents in many ways. Uh, sometimes it causes you to be paralyzed. <laughs> sometimes it uh, causes a... Uh, uh, Permanent, sometimes temporary, and sometimes it comes, comes and goes, and uh, makes you very weak and very f- fatigued and unable to, to do much of anything. And so, uh, and then of course it can be lethal. So uh, the fact that they have a drug that uh, uh, actually markedly uh, reduces the symptoms of multiple cirrhosis is something that is is uh, good. Uh, this is not yeah uh, so well anyway, that's what this article is about this doesn't show it that well but uh this drug is I believe it's been fda approved and it's being it's being used now so we can go to the next one because that doesn't that doesn't show up. This is an article, if you can show it, that tries to. uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Uh, This tries to help you understand how the immune system uh, has a responsibility of uh, eliminating any foreign invader that comes in with the role of destroying you. And uh, it's uh, amazing how effective this is. And of course, we who are transplant surgeons uh, do just the opposite of this because we try to knock out that protective immune system so that your kidney transplant or liver transplant or lung transplant and heart transplant uh, is not destroyed. But the goal of the immune system is to destroy the foreign invader, whatever that is, whether it's a bacteria, virus, a fungus, or protozoan. And uh, uh, one of the things that uh, has been a problem is the fact that sometimes we have immune things in our bodies that prevent our own immune system from doing what they're supposed to do. And we call those autoantibodies. And uh, Uh, we uh, recognize how important the immune system is when we find out, for example, with COVID, if you have antibodies against interferon, we now know that this is the reason why many of the people who died from COVID died because they had antibodies against their own interferon. And interferon is an antibody (laughs) that destroyed the, the coronavirus, and so uh, when you have antibodies that are attacking your own antibodies, uh, these are problematic. But the real understanding and the basic concept is that you have an immune system that is protecting you from infections of all causes. Some people think that cancer is a is a, a, a infection. Uh, Time will tell, but uh, we know that we have antibodies that destroy cancer cells. And and that's why the newest technology uh, will take the cancer, uh, take it out of the body, put it with your own cells and let your cells develop uh, forces that destroy that, and then put those protective forces back in your body. And all of this is pointing out that the immune system is the main stay for any infection, whether it's a virus protein, protein, virus or a protozoan or a fungi, or even uh, cancer. Uh, and most of the new cancer drugs uh, are trying to take advantage of the fact that you have antibodies in your system that are destructive for cancer and using those same destructive forces against cancer or whatever infection you have. And along those lines, uh, I think the, the uh, uh, extent to which the uh, uh, bacteria you have in your intestine uh, may play a role in your immune system's ability to fight off Uh, the foreign invaders as they try to get through to you.
2: And this this is an effort to
1: try to uh, simplify and make clear an understanding of how important the role of your immune system is in protecting you from getting infections. Uh, Because with an intact immune system, you can find out most things without an immune system, you you wouldn't be alive. Mm-hmm. And that theoretically is what uh, uh,
7: this article is is about. I see Alzheimer's up here. Um...
1: Yeah, well, all of those are neurodegenerative diseases, which are thought to be related to uh, the failure of the immune system to protect us against uh, amyloid and other deposits that damage our brain. And, and, and they point out that uh, in other articles that one of the things that sleep does uh, is that sleep allows the uh, uh, brain to recover from uh, these damaging products. There have been some studies that demonstrate that uh, a lot of the people who are old and and who have not developed Alzheimer's have the same amyloid deposits, but uh, their brain is able to control it and keep it from destroying the brain tissue. And uh, one of the things that uh, sleep does is allow uh, the uh, toxins in the brain to be... uh, Eliminated from the brain uh, and and preventing some of that toxicity. And uh, there there are new drugs now that uh, we're hopeful that we will be able to uh, make an impact on So far, none of the drugs that we've had have been able to actually uh, delay the progression of uh, Alzheimer's.
3: That um, eight hours of sleep a night has a different meaning when you look at it like this. It helps to clean your brain.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, except if you have an insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's
3: what I mean. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Which is uh, more common than we to thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go to the next one article That is an article
1: that talks about kidney transplant recipients and uh, the fact that uh, The fact that uh, we know that uh, when you're immunosuppressed, the ability to develop antibodies as a consequence of vaccinations has been a problem. And uh, this is, is important in those patients who have a normal immune response. And of course, transplant patients and cancer patients are given medications that prevent them from having a good response to vaccines. And as a consequence, uh, uh, the uh, likelihood of uh, people dying after uh, COVID is greater uh, than in uh, greater in the in the comp- immunocompromised or transplant patient than in other patients. And this study just points out that uh, uh, that uh, in the immunocompromised patient, there was uh, there were a significant number of patients who did not develop antibodies, although uh, it, it could have been much worse. Uh, many of the patients, however, did develop antibodies. And in some studies, as you see here, the kidney transplant recipients didn't have an increased rate of death. Uh, And uh, additional studies have suggested that uh, the further you're out and the the less you're immunosuppressed, the less likely you are to have a mortality from transplant, although we've had uh, examples of that long-standing patients who died from COVID, transplant patients who
2: died from COVID.
1: Any questions about this, the fact that uh, if you're immunosuppressed or you have cancer and you're treated with medications, uh, this then is a reason why you need to be vaccinated. Because then your risk of being hospitalized or dying from COVID are decreased.
7: Doctor County, the new booster coming out in September, right? Say again. A new booster shot for COVID. Yes.
1: Oh yes, that's yes, right. yes. That's what it should be because uh, mm-hmm. most of us got that re that second. Uh, booster shot uh of the uh probably in what uh april march and so uh in september we will be talking about an annual
7: uh booster shot and those patients who are immune suppressed they definitely have to continue yeah, they have to get in yeah. the uh booster shot absolutely absolutely
1: Okay, we go to the next one. That's an interesting article that uh, a new law comes into impact in Virginia. Then that's the only place it becomes effective uh, in the I think the intent was to increase donation rates. Uh, at least that's the, that's the intent of it. It requires this is what it requires em- employers to give employees sixty days off of pay if they donate an organ, hmm. uh, and this is to encourage organ donation. And when they come back, they have to uh, have the same amount of benefits and other terms that they had before they left.
7: That's okay. Uh, Dr. County, that's very close to being paid. <laughs>
1: no, they're unpaid.
7: Uh, no, I'm just saying the 60 days off, you know, like you can convert leave time into actual dollars.
1: Well, this just says that they're unpaid, that's all. It doesn't say
7: anything about leave time, so. Uh, The 60 days off is leave, I don't know. Unpaid leave. Right.
1: Unpaid leave,
7: okay. Unpaid leave.
1: So, That's vacation. this (laughs) This is only in Virginia, so.
3: A lot of people can't afford it though.
6: Exactly That's a lot well, of, a lot of days without being paid.
3: Yeah
6: well, actually um, uh, we also have
1: in the same area uh, a grant that the government has given that allows you to uh, give donors uh, money to be able to uh get donate and uh, pay for the travel and all of the expenses that are associated with that. That's uh, something that has uh, been in, available now for about uh, close to 10 years. So it's uh, it's, uh, reduce it, it's it reduces the disincentives for disincentives to be off, you know, as you said, 30 days, that's a lot of money that you've lost. Uh, uh, But uh, uh, at least they they will pay for your expenses, travel and expenses to do it. And uh, that. so it's not paying for the donation, but it is removing a disincentive for you to become an organ donor, which is what this (laughs) organ donor loan law in Virginia is trying to accomplish.
3: When you donate, does do you really require to be um, inactive for that length of time?
1: No. Usually, think so. for a kidney, it's about a week to two weeks. For a liver, maybe a little longer.
2: Okay.
1: But for a liver, it might be as long as uh, three to four weeks. Mm-hmm. For a kidney, it's probably more likely a week to two weeks. So people are doing everything they can to try to promote organ donation. As we know, the number one problem of transplantation is the shortage of donors. And uh, so efforts are being made to address that number one problem. And that becomes effective Saturday. <laughs> okay, now this, the next one is not so pleasant. the article. This is a unfortunate study that identifies a situation in which uh, the person in the, in the morgue, at Harvard was selling bodies, Uh, people who had donated their bodies, university, you know, taking their body parts and selling them. This was unfortunate in a time when we're uh, concerned about uh, what people do with what people leave behind, Donated donations of bodies, and they were selling uh, different body parts, as you can see here, and uh,
2: sad, yeah. sad, sad to say, and so uh, uh,
1: the, the bad part about, it, of course, is that Harvard is thought of as the uh, um, As one of the outstanding uh, universities in the world, not to speak of the United States, and this talks about the details. And uh, as you know, it's it's against the against the law. And so, the question is, what is Harvard going to do about it? And as you see here, this is a lawsuit too. Yeah, apparently the same kind of thing happened in. UCLA as well.
2: So,
0: what are your thoughts about this? At the bottom of the article, is talking about two dissected faces and uh, ship human skin to be made into leather. That's pretty Ah. gross.
2: Yeah, it's pretty gross. Sam. Sad. So I think the lawsuit is just going to be the beginning of uh, a lot of activity on the part of uh, this. um, Open up Pandora's box on, uh, if it's done here, the question is, where else is it done? Don't mention China.
1: Well, China is, 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 they they do, These are bodies that are donated. Uh, China's uh,
2: question is uh, they're taking people who uh, who are alive and uh, using
1: their, at least that's the, that's what they claim that they're taking prisoners of, Oh. using them as donors. But that's, I'll bring an article on that
2: maybe next week. Yeah. Any other comment? Except, and although it speaks for itself,
1: so, and it's not something that, uh, now that next article, right below it, Exercise may raise genetic risk for diabetes. Uh, We could look at that one too. Oh, well. okay. well, just do the the next uh, article. Don't worry about it. Just do that. Uh, And this is an article that talks about uh, uh, the right for uh, a doctor to dismiss a difficult patient. All physicians have had patients who uh, listen to them and patients who do not listen to them. And we have patients who are drug seeking and patients who are uh, aggressive and threatening. And so the question is, what can you do about that? I mean, can you discharge a patient? I've had uh, in my whole career, I've had about two patients who I, who I allowed to go to somebody else because they wouldn't follow uh, what I was doing. And I felt that 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 was dangerous to them. And so that they needed to get another physician. The the one thing that is clear is if you uh, discharge somebody from your care, you have to find somebody else for for them to be taken care of. Otherwise it's considered abandonment. And uh, so, uh, and as this says, ninety percent of the patients have been dismiss at least one patient during their career. And what you have to do is to, to find another doctor who will take care of them. Uh, and
2: if you if you don't do that, then you can't discharge them because then it is abandoned. Now. Uh, Because autonomy is one of the most important issues in
1: practice of medicine, which means the patient has the right to decide yay or nay. uh, And they also have the right to choose another physician. Uh, And you cannot be forced to to take care of a physician if they are not willing to follow your recommendations uh, because the patient has rights. And then this then becomes an issue that uh, uh,
2: becomes very worthy of discussion. What are your thoughts about it? Uh, Dr. Calder, on an unrelated topic, I know someone who got banned from being picked up by the Uber driver association. Why? Uh, because of you know non-compliance.
1: Oh, non-compliance mean they wouldn't pay.
2: They
7: wouldn't shut up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Any other comments on, uh, on dismissing the doctor dismissing you or you dismissing him? Because I they... have Go ahead.
5: I had a I had a doctor one time who I didn't like his I I didn't like the way that he spoke to me and it it started with I didn't like the way he spoke to his office staff and how he didn't listen to what I had to say to him so I dismissed him yeah. I didn't follow his recommendations because he he didn't speak to me as an adult. He spoke to me as it was almost like you do what I say, and i'm I know best, and that's why you're coming to me because you don't know anything and that was his <laughs> attitude, so i I stopped going I, I I didn't go to him any longer
1: well that's that's what you should have done I think. Uh... I think it's important to recognize that it's a two-way street, that uh, you have the right to get a second opinion and you have a right to dismiss him just as he may have a right to dismiss you. Right. Any other comment on the subject?
7: One other comment is that
2: if the patient dismisses uh, a physician, I don't think there's a problem with the law.
7: but um, if uh, a doctor, it says here, uh, it could possibly be a lawsuit if a doctor does it for illegal reasons such as discrimination based on race or gender. You know, In other words, if a doctor doesn't want to uh, service somebody that's LGBTQ,
2: uh, then they could possibly be subject to a lawsuit. Any yeah. other comment?
4: Um, You always come across people that are combative, very offensive, and et cetera. And a doctor just, you know, even in every line of work, there are always those type of people. Um, most of the time, you can, you know, even if I was teaching in there and you have a child that is just off the hook, very combative and you can't deal with them, you can put them in somebody else's classroom or a doctor, he has to recommend them. And if you recommend them to another doctor and you know that this person is extremely combative and sort of mentally ill, won't that other doctor dislike you for referring that person to them?
1: Well, you have to tell them the whole story.
4: Okay, and then they have a choice
1: of saying, I don't want that patient. That's
4: correct. Then you're left on the hook with taking care of that patient because nobody wants
1: them. Well, I think that if you made a reasonable effort to do it and that situation uh, still stands, you're probably in, in good shape because you've made every, if you make a reasonable effort to get that patient taken care of by somebody else and they feel that, He's too aggressive and they are not willing to do it. Uh, I think that, that that case will stand. But I don't, I, most of my patients who are aggressive like that, they need to be treated. And uh, usually they need psychiatric help. And I have been able to get that for them in the past. So that was never a reason for uh, getting rid of them, although I had patients throw things at me. Other things, <clears throat> most of the time, uh, having psychiatric support helped with that. So that was a, oh. was really a reason for why I got rid of them. It was usually because they were not willing to to follow um, my recommendations, and 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 so I felt that they should be treated by somebody else whose recommendations they could follow and they could live with. Uh, and as, it's a rare occasion, but. Uh, so so that situation of the uh, uh, mentally ill patient uh, usually is handled by uh, having psychiatric uh, uh,
2: consultation. Any other comment on that subject of dismissing and, and that? And, and the patients didn't mind that you brought in a
3: psychiatric person to talk to. No. Mm-hmm.
1: That's good. No, they accepted the treatment and calmed down. Uh, I had one patient who threw a chair at me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, so we got him treatment, and he, he got better. And he, That's
4: good.
2: yeah, so <clears throat> any other comments about that subject?
8: Yes, good morning, good morning, good morning. This is Elizabeth. Uh, Mary Allen sort of summarized part of my experience, the main part. Uh, Because I had worked in healthcare 20 years, and uh, see, um, the the thing about it, whoever you talk to, you never know what their experience is. You never know their knowledge and their wisdom. And I had an experience with my daughter. We had moved to a new area. And uh, so I was using my husband's insurance and uh, my daughter had a severe cough. So I took her to the doctor and one of his interns saw her, gave a prescription and I used it for seven days and no results. And so I went back to the doctor and I told him that the medicine is not working. It is, I'm not having no results. And so uh, the intern that saw me said that, um, maybe you're not doing it right. I said, well, I followed the directions uh, and I'm a person that reads the direction each time that I use anything. And uh, she was not very nice. And like Mary Ellen said, I noticed that they were treating their staff the same way. And so um, the next time I went for a visit, uh, I was called into the doctor's office and um, the head of the practice rather. And he told me that uh, he could not um, service me anymore. And because I should do like the rest of his patients, (laughs) I should bring in my child every day. And because I know billing and diagnosis and treatment and billable diagnosis rather. And I looked at him, I said, no, To me, I do not totally agree with that. Well, you should do what the other patients do. They bring their kids in here every day for us to check them. I says, well, that's your opinion. But he says, well, we can no longer service you because you're not following directions. Uh, And uh, I said, well, my child is not getting any better. Well, we can't do anything else for your child. Well, like Mary Ellen experienced, I knew to call the insurance company and I voiced a complaint. And so I just went on to, I just, you know, went on to another position. But uh, those situations do happen.
1: Thank you for sharing. Okay. I uh, don't no other comments. This is a, an article that we've talked about before that. Uh, um, we know that uh, some of these terms may not be uh, familiar to you, so I'll explain them. What they're talking about, reanimated donor hearts, means that uh, the heart stopped beating and you started beating it again. Uh, and uh, in the past, there was a concern that if if the heart stopped beating and uh, you got it started beating again. Uh, in, in, a, in a timely fashion. For example, if you got the heart start beating within eight minutes of cessation of, of the heartbeat, then the brain would be could still be alive. But if you got it started uh, after that period, the brain is not alive. So uh, brain death would be occurred. And so the, the organ could still be used for transplantation. And that's what this is saying, that uh, Even though people, uh, for example, most of the donors that we have are associated with brain death, which means that the brain is no longer capable of functioning. None of the parts of the brain are capable of functioning. And so most of the donors we have occur from uh, brain death, uh, which means the heart is still beating. Okay, so the separate category (coughs) is the category in which the Uh, heart has stopped beating and that's the cause of death. And so then that heart can then be perfused and then used for donation for somebody else. And this is now demonstrating that uh, many of these hearts that are used in this fashion function well and that this is another source of donation. Now this becomes critical because uh, uh, the number of uh, patients who are waiting for transplants is about 100,000. The number of transplants we do is about 40,000. So that you got 60,000 people who don't have organs and as a consequence, 15 to 20 people die every single day because of the shortage of donors. And so the need for organs becomes critical. So this is another source of donation, situation where uh, the patient is declared dead because their heart stopped beating. Uh, And in this kind of situation, uh, the heart can be used for transplantation, thus helping us address the donor shortage. And that's what this article is all about, indicating that uh, whether the patient uh, is is a donor because the heart stopped beating or because the, because the brain ceased to function, uh, the organs can be used for transplantation. So, and uh, to, to make a long story short, that is what this article is all about, that uh, the common commonest, uh, cause of donation is related to the definition of brain death, but that uh, uh, people who die uh, when the heart stops beating, can be used for donors as well with good results. And that's pretty much what they're saying is because we have this donor shortage that we should take advantage of any uh, uh, death that occurs uh, and, and when organs can be used. Now, uh, uh, if somebody dies, uh, eight organs can be used for to save somebody's life. And uh, there's about 60 tissues that can be used to uh, uh, improve the quality of life of people. So uh, that, that, that in essence is what this article is all about, indicating that uh, uh, there is a donor shortage that uh, is associated with uh, uh, loss of life. And the more, the more ways we can use organs from people who've died, uh, the better off we can be. Yeah. Any comments on on this uh, subject, which uh, is is the reason why uh, we're talking about using organs from other other species, like pigs, and the primate model, and also talking about uh, 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 regenerative medicine and growing organs and that kind of thing, and also taking organs that are damaged and and fixing them up and and then using them for transplantation because we're talking about 15 to 20 people dying every day because of the shortage of donors.
3: Uh, Dr. Collin, I'm curious as to, if you're saying the person is pronounced dead because their heart stopped, but their brain is still functioning, is that what you say?
1: No, I'm saying in those people, yeah well okay okay in other words there's a time limit so if if you've thought somebody's heart and they they have not been the heart is not eight minutes has not elapsed then the brain can be reconstituted so we're not talking about that we're talking about those people for whom uh, uh this is much longer than that and And so they're declared dead and the brain is dead and everything else is dead. In contradistinction distinction to the person for whom the brain is dead, but the heart is beating, which is the commonest source of uh, uh, organ donation.
3: Okay, okay, okay. All right, Uh, I hate it backwards, I guess, okay.
1: Any other comments or questions? Because sometimes this is not as clear as it can be, and sometimes my trying to clarify it is not good. So if you have some questions so I can clarify and make it plainer, I would uh, welcome the opportunity to do that. Dr. Th- Callender, go ahead.
5: Go ahead. <laughs> Dr. Calendar, how long, I mean, you know, I, my fear, because I've signed up to, to donate my body, my fear is that I will die in this. In my home, and they won't find me. So my 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 organs won't be of use. How long is too you know how uh, how soon do you have to harvest a body to be able to use it?
1: Okay, for organs,
2: you need sixty minutes. For tissues, twenty four hours. That's the that's that's the that's the time frame.
7: Sixty minutes for organs, twenty-four hours for tissues. Okay, Dr. Calendar. Now, a couple of organs have um, shorter time spans. You mentioned uh, eight minutes on the heart. What about? No, 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 no. I didn't.
1: No, I didn't say eight minutes on the heart. I said if the heart is stopped for longer than eight minutes. The brain is dead. Okay. Okay. Because now we have uh, uh, situations where if we can keep the heart. Uh, if if the heart is taken out, we can preserve it on ice. Or we can preserve it on normothermic perfusion for uh, eight hours. So so uh, so so we have ways of preserving uh, the organs after they are removed. Uh, the old fashioned way was putting them on ice. <laughs> and for example, on ice, the kidneys could be preserved for 24 hours, uh, actually on a preservation machine as long as 72 hours. The heart uh, was only eight hours uh, and the liver was, previously was eight hours. Now we have machines that can allow the liver uh, to uh, being perfused for as long as 24 hours, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, the kidneys uh, and lungs and other organs can be used for uh, 24 to 48 hours. So the preservation times now have increased uh, before, okay. before it used to be 48 hours, but now we have uh, ways of preserving them that allow us to, to preserve them for a longer period of time. But but if you get those organs after 60 minutes, then they're not going to be able to be used.
3: So, back to what Mary Ellen was saying about maybe dying at home, uh, after 60 minutes, even though she's donating her body for scientific research, they could not use.
1: They can use it, but okay. they can't use it can't use it for an organ donation.
3: Okay, that's that's what I wanted to make clear. Okay,
1: yeah, yeah okay, yes, they can still use it for uh, mm-hmm. uh, purposes of uh, donation for uh, research net, for research yeah. and for uh, uh, giving it to a medical school.
5: Okay.
3: Yeah.
1: Okay. Right. Yeah. It's kind of what And uh, your concern is a valid one, and that's. One of the things that when you live alone, uh, why you need one of the things that we talked about, and some time ago is uh, if you live alone. How do you let people know if you're uh, falling down or unconscious or something like that. And so, uh, do you have uh, something that, that monitors you, and that cause calls somebody, if you suddenly. Uh, stop breathing or your heart stops or your your blood pressure stops. And so uh, most people who live alone, uh, their families tend to uh, get them, have some uh, alarm system that when something happens to them, somebody is notified. And if got, you live alone and don't have that, then it's a good idea to get it.
0: I've got an Apple watch with a false sensor that uh, if you don't respond, it'll ask you the question, did you have a hard fall? And if you don't respond, the watch will call 911.
1: Yes, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And that's the thing that people who live alone should probably have uh, so that uh, if they fall or something like that, uh, somebody will come immediately so that the situation that you talk about would not occur.
7: Yeah, there's also that uh, met alert chain that you can wear where you can push a button to call 911.
1: Right. And then, in a situation where you can't uh, push a button, that's the situation that you need to have as well. Because, uh, as uh, Darrell stated, if you don't respond to the, the conversation, then they automatically call 911. And that's what you need to have. Because sometimes you just have a stroke and you can't respond. Or you fall down and hit your head and you can't respond. So that's the situation Um, uh, where you need uh, monitoring. And uh, uh, so those who live alone, those are things that uh, should have have in place. It's it's
2: recommended that you have that in place. Was this a, a comment or question? Okay, let's go to the next one. This is an article we talked about before
1: actually that uh, uh, Obamacare still covers preventive, pre- preventive care, and also prevention worth a pound of cure. And uh, Trump had tried to eliminate most of Obama care, but the courts have upheld uh, uh, the preventive care uh, clause. So that, that's still going on. And hopefully uh, we'll also uh, go back to go back to the point at which we need to recognize healthcare as a right for all Americans, which we do yeah. not have yet. And let's hope that uh, that continues to be sought after because that is one of the biggest obstacles to uh, having uh, access access to care for many of our citizens,
2: particularly people who are of color. Okay, I think that's the essence of that article. Mm -hmm. Let's see, we can probably do one more. And we also need to be sure that John Buchanan is okay. Yeah, he he was on the line.
7: He's in New Mexico Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, I think, uh, let me see. I think we've done most of these. Yeah, we, we talked about super loads. Yeah, we
7: did talk about that. So. But it didn't, we didn't talk about depressed. <laughs> didn't talk about what? uh it says that it can cause depression it looks like
1: oh no that's a, that was a different different subject uh let me see if there's anything there oh let's look at that medical students aren't showing up to class did we discuss that before oh do yeah
2: we, yeah we
4: yeah
2: do. okay well let me see uh <laughs>
7: What about menopause and
2: long COVID? We talked about that too already. Um, uh, talk about all of these things. It's interesting. You don't have some of the ones that I
1: sent you. Uh, go up to the to your top. Go up to the top. Let me see if you have any. You don't have any. I sent you a lot of uh but then i guess
2: that yeah you probably didn't get the one that said yes last night okay all right let me see oh uh, the ones that are bolded i think we haven't talked about actually okay um
1: we talked about list diving. We talked about, uh, oh, that Christian docs claim victory over state and aid
2: dying laws. I'll put that in there, yeah, because, uh, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, what they're talking about is that uh, they, they want you to be able to, uh, they wanted some docs to assistance in uh, helping people die. And uh, the Christian doctors sued because they said that's not, that's not what Hippocratic, Hippocratic Oath is all about, that they should not participate in your assisted suicide. And that, that, that is not what doctors do. And so I I wanted your thoughts about that, Uh, you know, should physicians assist
7: in somebody's death and somebody who doesn't want to live anymore? Uh, i got an idea, Dr. Callender. I think that uh, general practice is saying that they should not, and maybe another field of medicine, uh, a brand new field of medicine (laughs) where you can go to doctors that have a license to assist with uh, suicide as necessary.
1: Well, you know, in states, for example, DC wanted to be one, but I think- Congress, Congress.
2: Congress. Yeah,
1: they they did it.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. But uh, there are some states now in which it is illegal to do that. And so, if the state has that as illegal, then uh, you can find a doctor who does that. Uh, so, but I, it's interesting, your idea is, is a, a new one that uh, uh, flies in the face of the Hippocratic Oath, which is that your job is to save lives. Uh, and uh, uh, you are saying that there should be a group of doctors whose job is to uh, shorten lives. And uh, that's an interesting, uh, controversial idea that uh, many people would have uh, take issue with. Although uh, I think Doctor Death uh, uh, Kavalkian
3: uh, yeah.
1: probably would agree with you that there's a category of patients who uh, we can't do anything about who uh, would like to end their suffering. And that, that's what what you and, and point of fact are in agreement okay. with Dr. Kavalkian on that uh, there's a category of patients for whom every second they live is torture. And uh, we should be able to do something about that. And uh, uh, we haven't gotten to the point where that is something that we agree on in every state. So that's, it's something they agree on in Sweden. Uh, but not here in the United States. So, any other thoughts? Tatum's come with an interesting idea. What are your thoughts about that?
5: I thought that doctors that that work in hospice, I thought they were kind of easing you into yeah. it.
1: <laughs> yeah, but but they're not. <laughs> that's an interesting concept because my opinion is the same same as yours, is that uh, the hospice doctors. Uh, give you enough medication for you to die peacefully, uh, but theoretically, they're not supposed to be hastening your death. They're just supposed. No, to, they're supposed to be allowing you to die painlessly.
5: My my aunt uh, just died on on Juneteenth, and she was hundred and three years old, and she had been in hospice for ten days. And they brought all this medicine to the house, morphine and, and all this stuff. And she never took any of that kind of medicine. But they brought all that. They did bring some oxygen. And before they could almost get, get it set up and everything, she, she, um, she what, what happened was she stopped eating and then she wouldn't open her eyes. And she did that for a few days. And they called her in the hospice. As soon as hospice got in there, it was like her eyes opened. She asked for the telephone. She started making calls and asking for food. And then uh, uh, two days later, she went back to the same thing. But before they could get the oxygen set up and they had the morphine, but they didn't tell tell my uh, cousin how to use it. She passed away. But she had a whole box full of morphine.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear they didn't use it.
5: Well, <laughs> okay. no, they didn't uh, use it, but what I'm saying is I thought that's what, No, uh, I, I thought that's what hospice supposed to aid you in dying, help not, you
1: to- it, it really is not supposed to aid you in dying. It's supposed to uh, help make dying painless. It's not supposed to- oh, okay. It's not supposed to hasten your your
5: your death. Well, I didn't think hasten. I mean, I thought like ease you into it.
1: Well, that that is what they're supposed to do. No, you're right. They are supposed to make it ease your pain and and uh, make. They say
5: palliative, palliative care.
1: That's what it is because uh, they're supposed to make your dying easier for you, but not hasten it. Right. Right. But mm-hmm. what John is talking about is those people who hasten it. yeah and, and he's saying they need to be licensed to do
0: that <laughs> uh, Socrates was sentenced to death and he got to choose his method of execution and he chose hemlock and he mixed it with tea and uh, it killed him and you can order poison hemlock from Amazon for 897 and it'll, it will do the job
2: what? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. wow. That's
1: suicide. Why was he sentenced to death?
0: For corrupting the youth of Athens, because he was uh, anti-democracy. So he told the youth that democracy was a failed system, and um, there was a, a Athenian jury of a hundred. It was called a solon. A hundred people uh, voted on uh, on at his trial, and fifty one convicted him of corrupting the youth of Athens, and the penalty for that was death. Wow. That's, that's, that's sad. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's sad.
7: Yeah, it should
0: have been a two-thirds vote. Hmm. Well, tell that to the Athenians, you know, it was their rules, and so they did it their way, not John's way. (laughs)
7: <laughs> no, not that was Robert's Rules. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they didn't do Robert's Rules back then.
7: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any other comment before we close? Uh, one other comment I wanted to make was, um, you know, the idea of having a license to assist in death um, is is similar to an abortion clinic. You have uh, doctors and clinics who specialize in abortion. Isn't that similar? No, no.
1: I don't think so. But I mean, you know, no. uh because uh, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't see the similarity, uh, but y- you might because uh, your perspective is that those uh, people are uh, those people are alive, so. It all depends on your perspective. Some of the doctors feel that those those people aren't alive. So, uh,
2: so I think it's different. I think it's different. Yeah, I guess Christians would talk about what
7: is life. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. When does life begin? Yeah, right.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, okay. Well, we've had an interesting uh, uh, hour and a half. And uh, any other comments before we close? I wish you all. We're going to July the fourth shortly next weekend. Before I meet, Uh, any
7: thoughts? One comment I have is: is is eighty-four years old too old to get a lung transplant?
1: Uh, The contraindications to transplantation have nothing to do with age. They have to do with, the, but you asked specifically about lung transplant. Lung. And, uh, yeah, and uh, uh, that is a particular for most transplants. That's that's that age is not a contraindication for lung transplants. I don't know what they have adne- identified as the age for which they stop doing lung transplants. So that's a specific. Uh, area which i'm not clear on in terms of what is the age limit okay. for heart transplants it's uh, uh, it's going up to 70. it's interesting when i started transplants it was 50. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and now now age is not a not a contraindication of transplantation Comorbidity is in other words if you're healthy and 80 you can have a transplant, 84, you can have a transplant. Now, lung transplant is a, a different uh, issue because that's a specific, uh, and the mortality rates are different for lung transplant in contradistinction to kidney transplant. So, so I don't know the answer to that for lung transplant.
4: Um, Dr. Callender, today, um, Sylvia Davis is attending the funeral of Mrs. Dorothy Fontroy, uh, Reverend Fontroy's wife passed, and the funeral's today at 11, at New Bethel Baptist Church.
2: Oh, okay.
4: And if you remember uh, Fontroy, Walter Fontroy, at first...
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He's still alive, right?
3: Yes, he is. Yeah, he is. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, mm-hmm.
3: Doing well, too.
1: Yeah, his brother. Well, he's he's he also has dementia, right?
4: Yes, he does.
1: Yeah, and his brother is alive too. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Funtler, yes. yeah,
7: yeah, yeah. Billy fontroy yes, yeah,
4: and he's doing fine. He was one of the aviators, Billy fontroy or something like that.
1: Yeah, he's up there. He's up there. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. He's
1: uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Okay. Well, it's good. Thank you for all attending and. Uh, Thank you for everything you've done, yes. and let's. Oh, we have a. Let's see. Uh, oh. there is mm-hmm. I think uh, John uh, Buchanan had somebody who's going to present to us on July the thirteenth. Uh, I think it's a psychologist. Uh,
2: okay. So, okay. So until July the sixth, huh? Yeah. Okay.
1: Have a great weekend and
4: Okay. Oh! okay. Nice